I turned back, and to my horror, came to intersection after intersection, where two or three tunnels, all of which looked like the right one, would go off in different directions as far as I could see. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. You're here with the Sultan of the Slough, Brando. Sultan of the Slough. And the albino crayfish, Jamesy. <laughs> Coming at you live from good old Lauraville, Florida. Not really live at Lauraville, Florida. Recorded live. Recorded live, wishing we were in Louisville, Florida, as I was shoveling 12 inches of snow yesterday morning. Peacock Springs is world-renowned for being one of the most beautiful cave diving destinations that, that people all over the world go to. For its clear water, beautiful sights, extensive underwater cave system. Comfortable depths where you can get some good long dives. People of all experience levels can have a great time from from just intro and cavern and beginner to very advanced cave divers can do some really big dives. Oh yeah, the uh, the lack of flow there is helps as well. It's one of those. Uh, I'm trying to think of others without flow off the top of my head, but it's it's the one that comes to my mind when I think of very little flow and old peacock springs was basically the little original project of the late great sheck exley yep yes it was <laughs> and this, and this was kind of his baby right this is where he kind of grew up really got going started exploring these back in the 1960s right sure now i did a lo- little research you know who the very first cave explorer was in Peacock? No, I don't. Guy by the name of Vasco Murray. You ever hear of Vasco Murray? Vasco Murray, no. In 1956. And it was about a decade or so later that Skin Diver magazine had published an article talking about the different springs that... Sheck and a couple of these guys got their hands on and flipped through this magazine and started going out looking for these different little sinkholes to jump into. And 
the birth of what would later become Peacock Springs and even later become West Giles Springs State Park finally happened. Now, a lot of people think that Peacock Springs got its name because there's a bunch of goddamn peacocks running around. But that's not the case. No, we killed them all off. You got to eat something <laughs> after those long dives, right? They got into the uh, soda sorb from all the breather divers. No longer peacocks. But no, it really came from the name of Dr. John Calvin Peacock, who okay. had moved his family to that Lauraville area from North Carolina back in the mid-1800s. See, I didn't know that. That's uh, Look at you laying down the, the facts, the knowledge. That's pretty good. That's something new I didn't know. See there? Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he kind of raised his family there and raised cattle and practiced medicine and you know like like everybody down in northern Florida was a like a self-proclaimed preacher guy too, you know. Everybody down in northern Florida <laughs> is a self-proclaimed preacher guy. Well, especially back in the 1800s. Ah. Uh... I mean, you drive through northern Florida to go t- cave diving, you're going to pass one of two things. A Baptist church <laughs> or a cattle farm. Yeah, yeah, you got that right. A lot of churching going on down there. Those people must be real sinners. They need like a church every other block. <laughs> so, what was your first cave dive, James? Because mine was mine was in Peacock, actually. First time I uh, strapped gear on and jumped in a cave. Oh, mine was in Tobamori. You oh, the, the, the caves you ever been to the caves Tobe, in eh? Yeah. Classic. <laughs> well, anyway, you're saying that with like I can there's a, there's a little there's a little bit of uh vinegar in the uh, <laughs> it's in not the, vinegar. It's more of a I think I guess it's just an eye roll. <laughs> Here we go. The caves of Tobe. It's kind of a for for a cave diver standpoint, it's a bit disappointing. When you, you go do the cave dives of Tobe. Mine was in Peacock as well. That's where we mm-hmm. did, you know, the first first real cave dive in my class as well. Mm-hmm. And then we did a bunch more because there's a, there's a bunch of different stuff to do in that system. And still to this day, you know, when we go down there, that's generally the, the get back into the groove dive, yes. you know? Yeah, that's the warm-up dive. Uh, or two, yeah. That's a that's a nice little get back in the water cave, and it's a beautiful feeling. Mm-hmm. Beautiful sights, good changes of of depth. Right, I mean, it's a lot of ups and downs, and open areas, flat areas, big areas, restricted areas. I mean, it's it's a fun dive to do, and beautiful. Oh yeah. Right? Coming yeah. out of coming out of Orange Grove on a bright sunny day is amazing. Uh, coming out of you know Peacock is gorgeous as well. I mean that big cavern room there, but still for me one of my favorite sights is you know untying the reel at Orange Grove and when you can see the trees and people walking around on the surface seventy feet above you. I mean that's a yeah that's a beautiful sight. Yeah. It is. It's uh, kind of cool watching the bubbles clear the duckweed there at Orange Grove. That's the thing I like about Orange Grove. All that duckweed, and y- y- you look at it, 
before anyone's in it, and it it looks like a marshy swamp, nasty little hole there. I mean, a it, water, yeah, yeah, like nobody in their right mind would ever jump into that. It looks like it's going to yeah. be the most disgusting water you could imagine, just with a thick, pale green coating of slime. It looks like, yeah, and then you break through that water, and it's forget gin, about it. mm-hmm. gin clear usually. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's Orange Grove for you. Yeah. Speaking of Orange Grove, it's kind of an odd name, isn't it? Well, not in Florida. <laughs> the, cit- <laughs> the Citrus State there. It's that odd of a name. Now here, maybe, unless it was orange. Uh, but there's no, but there's no orange trees there. Are you sure? Around Orange Grove Sink. Yeah, I don't. I don't recall seeing any, but there's orange trees you ever come all up, over. You ever Florida. come up from a dive and just like grab see, an orange? Just grab an orange to re- refresh your dehydrated palate after breathing all that compressed gas. Uh, yeah, actually, a and nice, uh, and I also grabbed a yeah, peacock. Yeah, but that, you reached into your cooler <laughs> to grab that. Orange, I grabbed not <laughs> off of a tree. I grabbed a peacock who ate an orange. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they say that once, apparently, there were a bunch of orange trees, but not any of them have survived. Survived the great drought of 1894? What did they survive? Basically, they they say that uh, where Orange Grove Sink was was basically a a dry little island. A dry little island with a big hole? And then a sinkhole hit or what? Yeah. Okay. An island that was all water around it, eh? From yeah. from the main peacock, uh... from yeah, in that area, and then it eventually, you know, kind of broke through. And but at one time, back in the olden days, there used to be orange orange trees there. That's how it got the name Orange Grove. So in Sheck's book, The Taming of the Slough, a comprehensive history of Peacock Springs. He does go through and talks about a few of these really cool sinkholes that we now know of all throughout that area, like Orange Grove and Peacock One and Challenge and Olson and Pothole and Waterhole and, and, and where all these little spots came from and how they learned about them. And the part that he actually wrote, The Conquest of Peacock Slough Caverns, which is what Sheck was originally writing in his manuscript. And then this book was later finished off by a bunch of other people um, because Sheck just got sidetracked and a lot of other people finished off a lot of the mapping of the system while he was off really on his quest for depth and other caves that caught his interest. But he says in his foreword that the subtitle... The most incredible cave exploration of all time may seem a little presumptuous, and perhaps it is. Certainly even the largest of the Peacock Slough Caverns, the Peacock Springs Cave System, is far from being the world's longest or deepest cave. Now, at the time, there was a time where it was the longest underwater one in the United States. Yeah. Right. And that was later blown away by that big Wakulla connection. Yeah, I was going to say, that blew away a lot of records, so, yeah. But he talks about, as a matter of fact, 
compared to Kentucky's Flint Ridge Mammoth Cave system, which is 170 miles long, and Spain's Pierre St. Martin Cave, over 4,000 feet deep, Peacock pales in significance, just over four miles long and 210 feet deep. But the aspect of Peacock that rates the incredible tag is not the caves themselves. It is the fact that through years of incredible, hard, persevering work, despite seemingly insurmountable obstacles, which have included 22 deaths, the caves have now been completely explored and surveyed. 99.98% of Peacock is always completely underwater. Wow, I didn't know there were, what did they say, 22 deaths there? Wow. Yeah, and that was back in the days of uh, writing this book. He mentions in here that many of the clear pools have been long known to the local folk and bear old names. And this is one of the things I like about old Sheck. Being a Florida guy himself, he was like Jacksonville guy, if I'm not mistaken. He 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 likes uh, poking a little little bit of fun at the... At the Central Florida folk, and <laughs> you know, he often he'll write out their vernacular. You know, uh, when he's uh, he's writing about that area, like running into those locals. Well, it's, it kind of gives you the feel of being yes, down there, right? Exactly. Like you're actually yes. sitting around the Lorville store there. Yeah, the Lorville uh, Country Store, the Country Store down there in Lorville, and uh, looking at the map on the wall and all that good stuff. Yep. It's all yep. part of the, the journey, the experience yep. of North Central Florida cave diving. He says Bonnet Springs was named after the profusion of blooming water lilies that were found there, locally uh-huh. known as bonnets. I thought it was named after the bonnets the peacocks wore while they're eating their oranges. <laughs> you would think so. <laughs> Fact check. Baptizing spring, he says. What do you think baptizing spring had to do with? How do you uh, think baptizing spring got its name? <laughs> baptizing the peacocks that are wearing the bonnets. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you're smarter than you look. <laughs> At one time, reportedly the most popular of the springs for Sunday afternoon picnics. Baptizing spring was named after the use by a local Baptist church in its ceremonies. The three pools of Peacock Spring themselves, he says, and its two-mile-long intermittent run of the river, Peacock Slough, were named after Dr. Peacock, a local landowner who lived in the area at the same time of the War for Southern Independence. He makes mention that us Yankees up here in Michigan probably know this as the Civil War. (laughs) But down there, it was the war for Southern independence, y'all. The two running springs apparently had no more rationale for their names than (laughs) the swiftly running water. And he says that the names of Pump Springs and Walker Springs have long been forgotten. I forgot them. I have nothing to say about it. I don't even remember them. Now, if we go back to Orange Grove... You know, divers for many years have been trying to change the name of Orange Grove? No. Because they, they, there's no goddamn oranges around Orange Grove. So they, they, divers have been saying for years, why the hell you call it Orange Grove? There's no goddamn oranges around here. 
I could really, I could really go for a <laughs> for a navel orange right about now. You should have called it Dirt Grove. What, I mean, they <laughs> should have uh, called it Dirt Road Grove. Well, I was going to say there's a lot of like aloe plants and you know the usual aloe grove would make sense, yeah. right? Aloe, yeah, palm grove. How how about used to been a saber tooth tiger grove? There you go. I like that one. <laughs> But he says that uh, several divers, enraptured by the beauty of the azure blue pool, deepest of all 16 pools, have suggested several alternate names, including Orange Spring, Violet Hole, and Scarlet Sink. And I think we should add Sabertooth Tiger Grove. And dirt road hole <laughs> to the names. In the reprinting, <laughs> in the 2021 reprinting of The Taming of the Slough, yeah. they're going to add those two in there. However, he says, none of the new names have caught on. And with good reason, cave divers are the newcomers to the area and really don't have the right to go around renaming wonders long loved by others. So it was lo- it was called Orange Grove long before us silly cave divers came around. Well, yeah. He's got an interesting story about Olson Sink. You remember Olson Sink? Olson, yeah. Olson's one kind of, your, of a, uh, Go uh, ahead. I was just going to say I think that was one of uh, the first traverses I did was Olson Sink. I can't remember. Yeah, Olson is uh, one of the yeah. very popular traverses. And traverse for the non-cave diving listeners is where you basically go in one cave and come out another, right? Basically. It's a popular place in, in cave training where you get in the water, you make a nice long run of about 1,400 feet from Peacock to Olson, named after one Dick Olson. He adventured through that thick hardwood forest that covers much of that area in where the Peacock Springs State Park is. And poking through, Sheck says, the fallen tree limbs with a staunch conviction that Olson Cave must go somewhere. But he says that old Dick was scooped on making the next connection by the diligent efforts of a pair of members of the Orlando Otters, then the largest skin diving club in the entire Florida Skin Divers Association. I didn't know that. Yeah, neither did I. The old otters there. The, the Orlando, the Orlando otters. otters. And compared to, you know, uh, uh, Sheck's club was the Dixie Cavern Kings. <laughs> you think there was a little, I wonder if they had like, uh, you know, like motorcycle colors that they wore, you know, down there. Cavern Kings versus the otters. If you ever got at the, the local <laughs> at the local cave diving bar, there's a sign that says no colors, <laughs> no cave diving colors. Actually, some of the some of the places down in Florida need need one of those signs again. <laughs> it's getting a little rough down there. Uh, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> did you ever get the urge to, like, start a dive club and then like, think of a name, you know, or did you never get past that first hurdle of thinking of a cool name? Well, that's that's where I'm held up. Yeah, so that's look, why I don't see. Do look it. at here. Wait, wait. See, look at my whiteboard back here. See, the, see all those names. I'm gonna have the coolest goddamn dive club if I can just narrow this list of seventy-two down to one final name. James's Jive Turkeys. That is that's in contention. That's in the top three. 
He says that Rick Wright and Howard Bradbeer were enthralled by the large 10-foot diameter trunk passage winding its way upstream from Pothole. Reeling out into the apparently endless cave, they eventually found themselves at the foot of a broad, muck-floored avenue that slowly spiraled upward, abruptly rounding a bend in the avenue. They began congratulating each other upon spying daylight streaming in from among the tangle of submerged trees in Olsen Sink. Unaware of the efforts of Dick Olsen, they promptly renamed the new entrance Bradrick in their honor. However, to their misfortune, Bradrick is harder to say than Olsen. (laughs) And you know what they say about cave divers. (laughs) So, over the years, being that Bradrick is harder to say than Olsen, Sheck says that the latter has prevailed among cave divers, who are about as lazy as anyone. He also talks about Sistine Sink. Sistine Sink. Sistine. Yeah. Which is a duckweed-covered sink in the same general depression as Orange Grove Sink, and separated by only a couple hundred feet of breakdown. He says that no one really seems to know just where the name Sistine comes from. The true namer declines to stand up, he says, and not without reason. Interesting, he says that one school of thought is that the name was really inspired by a rather gross and stinky cistern-like surface appearance of the hole. Sheck says that huge Leon Morrison is said to have shocked the living daylights out of a local fisherman when, covered with a heavy green algae, he lunged up with a roar from the hole. After throwing his fishing pole at the monster, the wide-eyed fisherman reportedly departed rapidly through the woods, screaming. Luckily for Leon, the fisherman didn't have a shotgun Along with to shoot the varmint. Shoot that there varmint. (laughs) And he says that uh, still another school of thought is that the name Sistine was inspired by the silent cathedral-like beauty of the underwater cave entrance. And that the namer, not too strong on Renaissance culture, really meant to say Sistine Sink. Regardless of which theory you subscribe to. The name Sistine has stuck. Ah. Sistine being like Sistine Chapel with an S rather than being from northern Mm. Florida folk called it the Sistine, (laughs) as Sheck writes in here. He talks about Pothole, which is another area. Another sink, yeah. Another sink, right? And uh, he says that it's actually, it's a British term for sinkhole is a pothole. (laughs) It's, no, it's it's a pothole, mate. Pothole. It's a pothole. Can I get a spot of tea for me pothole, please? (laughs) (laughs) Me and the Beatles in me pothole. (laughs) He talks about the peanut tunnel which is so named for its small size. The Nicholson Tunnel was named after noted cave diver and chair of the International Underwater Cave Rescue and Recovery Team, Henry Nicholson, Ah. who 
he mentions used the tunnel in traverse training. Thought it was named after Jack Nicholson. That's uh, new information no. too. No, that's Shining Sink. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. You're thinking of Shining Sink. It's McMurphy Sink. Yeah. <laughs> You're thinking one flew over the cuckoo's nest sink. That's a, that's totally different. Yeah. Nurse Ratchet Sink. Access to the Peacock system is through seven of nine openings. He says, Peacock One, Peacock Three, Challenge Sink, Orange Grove, Sistine, Pothole, and Waterhole. Sheck says that the bones of huge elephant-like mastodons and other prehistoric mammals found in the springs make us wonder if perhaps such gigantic animals were the game the red man sought. However, paleontologists tell us such animals did not survive the Pleistocene epoch, which ended approximately 10 to 20,000 years ago, probably before ancient man arrived in the area. Who knows, he says. Perhaps some young Indian brave was the first to gaze into the azure depths of Peacock Springs and question what lie inside the caves. Their entrances plainly visible through the air-clear water. But it took the arrival of scuba equipment as early as the 1950s. First report we have of a scuba dive in the Peacock area was by a Vasco Murray of Perry, Florida in 1956. That year, Mr. Murray apparently entered the water at both Peacock Springs and Orange Grove Sink. And he mentions that another early visitor of the area was Dave DeSotles, longtime executive director of Florida's National Association for Cave Diving. Dave dived Peacock and Orange Grove in 1959. He says that Vasco was basically there doing like some archaeological stuff, looking for fossils and bones and Indian artifacts. And it's not really confirmed how much cave diving Vasco actually did, but it's definitely known that Dave actually caved over in that area. Now, we had mentioned earlier about those 22 deaths that Sheck had mentioned, like back yeah. in the time of writing this. And Sheck says that many times a tragic death has led to the hue and cry of, let's dynamite the caves! And the equally ridiculous, <laughs> let's outlaw cave diving! What the public seemingly forgets is that virtually all of the victims were mature adult Americans who exercised their God-given freedom of choice to go cave diving. Something they enjoyed very much, then knowingly violated safety procedures that resulted in their deaths. So you get a choice as long as you do as we say. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's right, you know. He says, let us repeat, there have been no mysterious, unexplained deaths in the springs. There what about the aliens? <laughs> Well, that was, the that was in the 90s, <laughs> and that was after the writing of Taming, the Taming of, the of the Slew. Slew. He says they are always caused by violations of routine safety procedures, usually nothing more than diving without a guideline to find one's way out of the cave or not observing proper air supply planning procedures. Say that three times fast. Not supplying air supply planning procedures. <laughs> Proper <laughs> air supply planning procedures. Yeah. Yeah, good luck with that. 
even the only experienced cave diver ever to perish in the area, did so because he jumped from one permanent guideline to another in a strange cave without bridging the gap with another line. Sure enough, on the way out, he missed the proper turnoff and got lost. Ouch. Something that could have easily have been prevented by standard guideline protocols. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. When yeah, especially if you put like uh, jumps where the lines are, re- you know, those little tiny, short little jumps where like you blink and you're on a new line. Right. Yeah. It can be dangerous. It's because it's so easy to like when you can kind of see the line if you know the area. You can, you know it's right over in this little spot. So yeah. it makes, I, I understand why somebody that's been there many, many a times goes, ah, I'm not even going to bother running that little jump reel. It's, it's right there. You can't miss it. But you can. You can. And you don't know what's going to be going on on the way out. You don't know what the cave has in store for you. So if you're in a hurry, a rush, an emergency, easy to miss that stuff. Exactly. And it, it's like the old saying, right? You don't run a line to get into the cave you run it to get the gtfo baby yeah yeah you, you run it when everything goes to shit that you've got a clear path to get home right to get out yeah and you don't have to you know put all of your focus on that while you're potentially in a uh, problematic situation in 1971 the longest traverse now possible is it traverse or traverse Eternal question. It's been um, bugging. I've, well, officially, I think it's Traverse. <laughs> the official stamp has some kind of... That sounds like an Italian accent there, James. That's, Orange Grove of Fagioli. <laughs> Sheck says that the longest traverse now possible was not merely from Orange Grove to Peacock, but from Orange Grove to the Sistine Sink entrance separated on the surface by only a couple of hundred feet, but an estimated 6,800 feet underground. Accordingly, on the night of April 21st, 1971, we made the traverse, pausing briefly just inside the upstream cave entrance at Olsen Sink to change to fresh double tanks and lights and sip on squeeze bottles of Gatorade and honey. Delicious. Yeah, it's... It's Traverse. We only have Traverse City. So for our picky listeners out there, it is Traverse, but screw them, James. I say you keep saying Traverse in honor of Traverse City, which, if you didn't know, was not named after a Traverse. It was named after Dr. John Traverse of Traverse City, Michigan. No, I did not know that. (laughs) So in in um in the book he's got a special report that they describe the background a little bit of of this cave system the the distance of a few of these swims you know from Hornsby Sink to Hornsby Spring and approximately twenty eight hundred feet like being a, a a long swim for a, for a while um, he talks about the 3,600-foot-long tunnel from Challenge to Peacock uh, that became a new record in uh, 1970 set by John Harper, Um, a 5,600-foot 
Travers from Orange Grove to Peacock One, passing through Challenge Sink and Olsen Sink on the way and swimming under Pothole. Uh, this record was reportedly tied to two more groups, a team led by Tom Mount of Miami and led by a W.H. Kohler of Charleston Heights, South Carolina. But the old Dixie Cavern Kings wanted to make a clean sweep of the three records for cave diving with an improvement on Harper's 5,600-foot mark, which became the number one goal of his club in 1971. Did they do it with scooters? They swim that. They swam it. They swam it like old-time professionals. Like, I don't want to say real men because you can't say that. He swam that bitch, yeah. Well, that's a long swim with cave gear on. It's a long oh, swim. Yeah, yeah. To- towing a bunch of bottles with no flow. It's yeah. uh, in and out. Got to, or, or did they get out at the end? Well, they you didn't uh, go they back. Got out. Yeah, they switched. They switched uh, to a second set of doubles in Olson. Ah, okay. So they staged a set of doubles in Olson. Okay. So, do you want to? Uh, so, let's go through this dive a little bit. Okay, let's do it. So he says that. The record was to be a typical DCK middle-of-the-week affair, late at night to preclude any possible interference from curious onlookers. You know what a, you know what a curious onlooker is in, uh, <laughs> if you're just uh, diving a, a, a sinkhole in northern Florida in the, in, uh, in the afternoon? Do you <laughs> know what a... he means by a curious onlooker, Brando? Well, yeah, it's, it's usually more than one, but together the half dozen or so will have a full mouth of teeth if you add them up. <laughs> now, that is very, that is very, very, uh, what's the word? Accurate? <laughs> it's accurate, but it's not very nice. It's no, that's a terrible. Condescending, That is snobby. a terrible representation of, wow. the, of the families that are just out having a picnic well, that's not who I'm talking about. That's not usually who's like fiddling around with anything in your, you know, near your car or looking at your car. Like, oh, as soon as they're gone, we know they're gone for a while. We can. You got to watch it. You used to, you know, there is like Telford was that. I was just going to say, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, you just, uh, it's, it's just we're just having a picnic at Telford. What's the problem? <laughs> yeah, that is the one thing you see down there. Cave diving is curious onlookers. What y'all doing down there? <laughs> what y'all doing down there in that water hole? You boys going down to that water hole again? Wing <laughs> 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 banjos playing in the background. <laughs> he says that the record-setting team consisted of Chuck Stevens, 27 years old, and Sheck Exley, 22. Ooh. Sheck would lead and operate the reel. Team was supported and witnessed by. Tom Allen, 25, and Benjamin Stevens, 21. Did you ever uh, call it operating the reel? I'm going to start calling it operating the reel. Who's operating the reel today? I am operating that reel, goddammit. Like, it's very technical procedure, operating that reel, (laughs) instead of running the reel. But, yeah. The team met at Orange Grove Sink slightly after 8 p.m. on April 21st on a dark and moonless night, he says. And there was no uh, stairs down to the... Uh, not in those days. Not, not like the good old days now. He says, although the weather was warm, fortunately the mosquitoes were not very bad. Well, that's good. At 1048... Peacocks, the peacocks probably got all the mosquitoes. 
<laughs> or they're busy eating all the oranges over at 10 48 p.m all four team members submerged at cysteine hooking their line up to the permanent line just inside the entrance then swimming an additional 400 feet into the cave to leave a marker this dive made on single 71.2s lasted 23 minutes next the divers drove to olsen sink where they unpacked two sets of doubles one single 72 with single hose regulator, two weight belts, extra lights, a plastic clipboard with a grease pen, and believe it or not, believe Gatorade. It. Well, of course. Gatorade is, uh, cave diving is what made Gatorade so famous. I don't know if you knew that. That's why they call it Gatorade, because of the gators. In Florida. In Florida, in FLA, down there by, well, I, th- I have seen gators here at Peacock. I've never seen them at Peacock. Oh, I've seen them at Peacock. Oh, I've seen them at Peacock. Not not humongous ones, like six footers. Yeah. Didn't have my camera. Didn't have my camera. So it didn't happen technically. No camera. Didn't happen. No no picture. No happening. Happen. He says each diver's equipment included basic gear. Without snorkels, he makes split mention. fins. So split fins and <laughs> without basic gear, without snorkels. Well, basic gear is without snorkels. Kind of a redundant thing. It's like basic gear without the copy machine. <laughs> we don't use a copy machine. Exactly. Now you're getting it. <laughs> it's like basic dive gear without the snow shovel. <laughs> exactly. Uh, compressed air vests for buoyancy regulation. Knives, double seventy one point twos, octopus regulator rigs, watch, depth gauge, and decompression meters, and three lights apiece. Standard three cell U.S. divers underwater flashlight, ten thousand plus CP Icolite or one hundred thousand CP C light for primary lights. The special thirty watt super lights, handcrafted by none other than Sheck Exley. In addition, Exley had a plexiglass safety reel with 700 feet of 165-pound test nylon twine, and Stevens carried a safe line reel with five to 600 feet of the same line as a backup. Immediately prior to the dive, the divers consumed three vitamin pills, three tablespoons of honey, two 16-ounce cans of Gatorade, and a cup of strong black coffee. And now divers are doing it hungover. <laughs> with uh, a McDonald's <laughs> breakfast sandwich. Egg, Mc- <laughs> Egg McMuffin and Egg a hash brown. And black coffee. They got the black coffee still going. <laughs> at 11.38, Exley and Stevens finally submerged at Orange Grove. After securing the safety line twice to a sturdy log in the sinkhole, once at 15 feet and once at 20 feet, the divers wasted almost a minute Looking for the cave entrance. Son of a bitch. This was not only embarrassing, because, as you know... It's intolerable. The, 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 entrance, the entrance to Orange Grove is not in 20 feet of water. But also quite costly in terms of time and air consumed. Finding it, they adjusted their buoyancy at 70 feet and pushed on into the fascinating tunnel. 80 feet from the entrance, the tunnel abruptly changed character, rising up a steep slope of fine dark silt... From here to Challenge, a distance of at least 2,000 feet, the divers would be moving under very challenging conditions, 
bad silt, sharp turns, and a narrow tunnel. 450 feet from Orange Grove, they hooked into the permanent line where it starts against the right wall. 700 feet back, they were able to relax briefly when the ceiling rose high enough to allow them to swim above the muddy floor without using the special but tiring techniques for avoiding arousal of silt. Let me ask you a question. You ever... Aroused you ever, silt? Uh, what, are, what are your special <laughs> silting arousal <laughs> techniques? Oh, I whisper sweet nothings to the silt. Oh, that, sweet that baby. Oh, sweet baby silt. <laughs> Let me turn you up, baby. Yeah, silt arousal. Disturb. I would say it's more disturbing, the silt. Why do you think he chose arousal for that word, that particular passage? At 12.04 a.m., the divers arrived at Challenge and wiggled their way through the squeeze, a very tight minor restriction in 10 feet of water. It took Sheck two attempts to get through. Checking their air, they saw they had plenty to make it to Olsen, so they continued. Downstream from Challenge, the tunnel is much larger, and the divers were able to make good time going through. Since they were reasonably certain they would not be returning, they minimized all attempts at avoiding silt and pointed their efforts towards swimming as fast as possible without wasting air. At 12.20 a.m., Tom and Ben saw the reflection of the arriving divers' lights in the air-clear water of Olsen Sink. Chuck and Shaq signaled that everything was going great, drank their Gatorade, and set to swapping out their doubles. It took them about nine minutes to swap out gear. They uh, also swapped out lights and then continued on. So is it considered like, well, I guess it's just exploration, but it's not like a single dive. Well, correct. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. This, this, this was, this was um, before they used a stage bottle like they we would use a stage bottle today, right? Mm-hmm. He says they continued on a thousand feet further or a short length of loose line wrapped around the main Olsen Peacock line, heralded the turnoff to Sistine Sink. Shining their lights to the left, the divers saw the dark rectangular opening of the large Sistine Tunnel with the white safety line tied off against the right wall. They continued up this tunnel at a very rapid rate, now virtually unconcerned with the silt. And finally... At 12.45 p.m., the divers arrived at Sistine, having completed a distance of at least 6,400 and possibly as much as 6,800 feet, breaking the former record by over 800 feet. Shaking hands, the divers decompressed for 10 minutes at 10 feet, even though the meter showed no need to do so, he says. Just a cleanup, a little cleanup. Yeah, a little... uh, what meter do you think he's using? I'm oh, sure they were using that old uh, SOS, uh, yeah, that yeah. old de- decometer, yeah. Yeah. Now he says, although their record was set, the work wasn't over. Before leaving for their respective homes, the divers had to recover their safety line and reel 450 feet upstream from Orange Grove, which took 25 minutes, and then a sort of a, you know, celebration dive, he says. <laughs> <laughs> Was made, was made in the deep tunnel of Orange Grove to a depth of 105 feet, which took another 14 minutes. Celebration dive. That's how you know, you know, Sheck was pretty hardcore diving because you just did a bunch of diving 
And you in just order, set a, you just set a, a record. <laughs> in order to celebrate, I'm gonna go dive. I'm gonna go do a, <laughs> another little dive. I'm gonna go do another hundred foot dive. <laughs> says the use of Gatorade, vitamin pills, honey, and coffee appeared to be very successful, even though they were not in as good shape as they were on February 12th when the first attempt was made. Why? Did they have, uh, did they have some kind of quarantine where they just got locked in their house? <laughs> not, not allowed to go out? No, that would happen many, many years later. That's a lot of swimming. That's a lot of swimming with gear, well, yeah, right? And, yeah. and in and out of the water. It's a lot of work. So he says that in addition to setting a new record for distance, the divers also set a new record for time. They reached Olsen in only 42 minutes, including the wasted 30 seconds to a minute at Orange Grove Sink looking for the tunnel, and reached Sistine in only one hour and seven minutes. This is eight minutes less than anyone has been able to swim Peacock which is 800 feet shorter. However, one still has to realize that the divers had to spend nine minutes switching tanks at Olsen Sink, something that John Harper didn't have to do going to Peacock. If we subtract the nine wasted minutes, we get the simply fantastic time of 58 minutes for the entire swim. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, back, yeah, especially for back then. Mm-hmm. But... Not as amazing as one of Sheck's early dives from 1967. Oh, really? Where Peacock almost claimed its first victim. Claimed the Sheck Exley. Now, would Sheck be nearly the legend he is if he was claimed by Peacock? He would have been nothing because this was in the 1960s. He hadn't, done, he hadn't hardly done anything yet. Right. What if he had done I mean, he, he did a lot, but n- still... not in the comparison to what he was going to yeah. go on to do. You know? Yeah. But th- this, gives a, this gives a good understanding of why the caves are so dangerous and why Sheck became so enraptured in putting together the curriculum that is used today. Yeah, the foundation. Because of this assignment right here. Yeah, the foundation of uh, cave diving right now is built on old Sheck's lessons learned the hard way. So he and uh, he and a couple of buddies had been looking, you know, they got that Skin Diver magazine and they were tromping through northern Florida, coming over from their hometown of Jacksonville, looking for these springs, right? And dipping in and exploring them. And he basically fell in love with them. And he says uh, later... I finally, literally, was beckoned onward into the Peacock One entrance. Soon after the event, I wrote up the dive as an assignment for a high school English class. Today, I cringe with embarrassment whenever I read the story, but it does give a good idea of my mental state at the time and the mistakes made which have led many a less fortunate diver to his death. So he's a high school kid, gets a bunch of dive gear, and he's going to basically make this fascinating dive, which almost cost him his life. All right, so let's get into this. Lost in the Slough. Sheck Exley, 1967. Cave divers are a rare breed, Brando. Rare. To be exact, several non-divers and former cave divers have suggested that only people like them are found in mental hospitals and or suicide wards. 
<laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or a... <laughs> I find that I cannot argue the point, for I feel the same way every time I have a close call. Each time I swear that I'll never go down in a hole again. But as I always return to the haunting beauty of the limestone formations, the thrill of being someplace where no man has seen before, and the dash of danger always present, I have a friend who all but drowned in a cave at 80 feet below the surface of the water. And I'll be darned if he wasn't ready to do some more cave diving a week later. In fact, he was still recovering. Who was that? He's got that story in Caverns Measureless to Man. That was his old buddy Tommy. Tommy, was it Hawkins? Tommy Hawkins. I'm pretty sure that was the one, the, the early chapter, like Seconds to Live. I think he describes that story. Here he says, oddly enough... I didn't have a really close brush with death until my 19th cave dive in a cave that was familiar to me since I had been there before, known to the locals as the slough. Peacock slough consists of several boils in three large basins near the Suwannee River, which combine to form a slough to the river. The southernmost basin is a dead cave, one with no flow with a maximum depth of 65 feet, while the middle basin has a depth of 25 feet and four strong boils. Two of the boils are large enough to be entered, but the northernmost basin is so much more interesting that these are usually overlooked. Since the water was very cold, my buddy and I entered the water with full wetsuits on. Both of us had lights, but neither one of us had thought to bring a safety line. Since we would have the advantage of swimming with the current to the other basins, we decided to begin at the North Basin. And this is, this re- reminds me of like when I was a teenage high school kid and went down to Florida and we went and dove in one of the springs, took some dive gear with us when we went down to Daytona and mm-hmm. uh, me and a buddy, you know, we, we plopped into the river. That's my only alligator experience in the river. Ah. Was, like they were, they were building around the spring itself so we had to go down river a ways and swim up river to where the spring was i had this like six foot gator swim past us <laughs> but it was that it was like you're swimming through the river the fish are cool you know the, yeah. the, the water's nice it's a fun little real shallow dive and not even 10 feet of water till you get down and then we're gonna just peek our head into this little spring get blown around like a rag doll so this is really before he's really a cave diver. He's just kind of playing around on these springs, and he's going to go looking. Right? They're, they're having fun out there. <laughs> he says the wide, low cave entrance was in about 15 feet of air-clear water, and just inside we found a large room hewn out of light gray limestone. The cavern floor sloped at about a 45-degree angle to the 60-foot level. And we held as close to the ceiling as possible to avoid silt there. At the bottom, there was a very narrow crevice carved out of bone white stone, angling sharply downward to enter a large horizontal tunnel at 70 feet. Suddenly, my buddy, who hadn't had much air to begin with, 
signaled to me that he was on reserve, and I told him to return to the surface while I continued alone. Wow. So I, I, I'm pretty sure like this is uh, that area where you go into Peacock mm-hmm. and you go off to the right, right? When the, when the line drops down through that, yeah. that real tight that crevice you dropped yeah, out, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He says, I accompanied him part of the way to make sure he made it out okay. Then returned to the tunnel. So just gonna go, you know, just I'm just gonna I'm go just gonna right go a just little right, bit. <laughs> I'm gonna go right over there to that rock because if I get to that rock, you know, okay, yeah. then I've seen what I need to see. I'll turn around. I'm gonna come out to. Right? I can see what's on the other side of it, and then I'll turn around. Oh look, it's more rock. <laughs> Whoa, more water, more. I rock. didn't know there was gonna be another rock. I'm just gonna go to that rock. <laughs> that one looks really neat. Sheck says the tunnel widened until it was quite large with a diameter of at least 10 feet my flashlight beam revealed that its smooth gray walls stretched endlessly before me and i realized that i was probably in the underground river itself briefly i wondered how far it went my mind pictured the tunnel joining with a larger one then with another and on and on, all the way to the Appalachians or Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. Calm down, kid. We got to get out of Florida first. Y'all. Could you imagine being the uh, high school English teacher reading this? <laughs> yeah. He's got a rich imagination. <laughs> rich imagination. Why are you writing stories like this shit? <laughs> Down in that was, water hole. There was deep silt on the cavern floor, he says. But by keeping near the ceiling and swimming into the current, it presented no serious problem. After a while, I came to an intersection where another tunnel, about the same size as the one I was in, crossed it at a right angle. Hmm. Since I had no safety line, I should have stopped there, he says. But the excitement of exploration was pounding through my veins, fed by the fact that I never had a really close call before. Yeah. Uh, that, so you're invincible. You haven't learned anything, and you, you make these He's choices. 17. He's yeah. 17. Come on. What's the worst that could happen? I know, but do you, do you think that mentality is for young people? Or do you think, uh, well, it is kind of because they haven't done much. So they haven't had, and they're immortal, you know. Right. So you right. haven't had close calls, but you know, it, it makes me think about about dive training and the importance of quote unquote a close call in your dive training. There's uh, nothing that'll teach you better than right. than uh, you know seeing the Grim Reaper, you know, get ready to tap you on the shoulder. Yeah, having that your mind go there really quick when uh you know you're presented with uh, skills, or presented with with a situation. So, again, I go back to uh, the training. It's I thought it was important to try to make it realistic, you know, not, yeah. not ta- just talk about it. Yeah, yeah, like we were saying a couple of weeks ago, right? That's what you know. Larry said in that article about having the realness in your training and, and the right attitude every mm-hmm. time you get in the water of of not just being a ah, I'm going to go splash around and blow some bubbles. No, like take it seriously because it is serious. Yeah. Most of the time it's not, but it always is and when it needs to be, it's got to be, right? 
Right, yeah, Murphy's, all that, that stuff about Murphy's Law, it can happen to you, and it will happen to you eventually. Be ready, you know, and it will happen at the worst time. So, again. Yeah, which is the, the value of training that is going to bring in to the game that law of intensity and effect. That that's exactly about. it. Yeah, the law of intensity and effect. Right. Those horrific, scary situations. Mm-hmm. You remember them. You, you remember, remember them really mm-hmm. good. And you remember what you did and you remember what you were supposed to do or anyway. What you didn't, what you should mm-hmm. have done, what mm-hmm. you didn't do. Oh, shit. Yeah. Sheck says, although the place soon became a regular maze of intersecting passageways, I kept going just a little bit further until suddenly I realized I was hundreds of feet from the crevice and 70 feet below the surface of the water. I turned back, he says, and to my horror came to intersection after intersection where two or three tunnels, all of which looked like the right one, would go off in different directions as far as I could see. Yikes. Horrific. Like, can you, a horrific <laughs> feeling, right? Oh, yeah. Jesus. Just getting to a point where you're like, where the fuck am I? Just think and of you, it. And, and you've got, like, five ways to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's one thing if you're you're being funneled out to one spot, you know, and and you can tell the difference in the environment. But it's another thing where you could go anywhere, multiple routes, and they all look the same. Panic began to grip me, he says, and I unconsciously started swimming faster and faster, just guessing at which tunnel to take. Yikes. Yeah, um, I mean that's that's a lottery that <laughs> doesn't have a good payout, right? No. That's it's like the Russian roulette of well, cave it, diving. It right? does have a good payout if you win, but <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you only get He's, one chance at it. Yeah, just one. Yeah. I decided that the way out was somewhere to the right, but the big question was how far to the right, right? Because There's multiple ways on the (laughs) right-hand side. Mm -hmm. For all that I knew, the maze could extend for miles in that direction. I started at the cold, cruel gray walls, which had held so much fascination in me only minutes before. Looking upward, I found no life-saving crevice to the surface. As I turned around, I realized that I would probably die that I didn't have a chance in a thousand of getting out alive. Just that same day, I could remember joking with the guy I was diving with. If I had to die, I'd just as soon die in a cave under 100 feet of water as anywhere else. He just, he's, remember, he just said to his buddy before they got in. Son of a... I was joking. I was joking. I was joking. <laughs> Why can't you take tempt a joke, not, man? <laughs> tempt not the fates, young Sheckley. Sheckley. <laughs> yeah, well, again, you're invincible. I'm just I'm I'm looking at this dive and uh I you can see where the the guidelines come from, where the training comes from. I mean, you're looking at this going, well, there's a, so many 
opportunities for it to go to shit <laughs> when you yeah, you're, send your partner back on low gas right there. He's he's on reserves. Send him home by himself. I'm going to keep going. Right, and then you go down. You go down through that tight, tight uh-huh. passage, which is basically like a straight down. Yes. So in, in a way, it's above your head, right? Mm-hmm. And there's area below that that you could keep going and, and swimming along. Like nowadays, you're following that that gold line out. Right. So so you've got the direction of you know you're exiting right there. But keep in mind, like here he is. Nothing. That line's not there. Right. Right. And when you're just swimming along in the dark with a Crappy with a, light <laughs> with a light from 1960. Yeah. What was like it? A 1960. 30 watt halogen, <laughs> 20 if, watt halogen. If yeah, this is this is decades before he yeah. made the really good 30 watt halogens. Right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Those awesome 30 watt halogens came out, and a 50 watt. <laughs> and now he says, "I was about to do just that." Needless to say. I began to pray silently as I swam along. Suddenly, I noticed that it was getting hard to breathe. Son of a bitch. (laughs) I pulled on my reserve rod and breathed in slowly on the fresh air, mindful of the fact that at 70 feet, it wouldn't last very long. Mm -mm. Now, having given up practically all hope, I guessed I had about Five minutes left until the end. I came to another dead end and started to go back when I realized that a narrow crevice led upward through the ceiling. For some inexplicable reason, I decided to examine it more closely. It didn't look at all familiar, he says, but it was heading in the right direction, so I squeezed into it with some hope. Now, the crevice that we're talking about that leads you, you know, towards pothole, it's a tight, it's a tight restriction, but you can get through it in a set of doubles. Yeah. And he went through it swimming, you know, working his way through the tunnel, but it's not like he got stuck or anything. No. When he was going in. Right. He says here, soon it became very narrow. So narrow that I wedged myself in and had to back down and twist sideways to get through. I watched my depth gauge. 60 feet. 55 feet. 50. Suddenly, just as the crevice grew tight again, I thought I could see daylight above me. Nothing could stop me now. <laughs> Exhaling. <laughs> Exhaling so that I could make myself as thin as possible, I kicked hard, feeling the rough limestone tear at my wetsuit, and burst into the main room where I could see the beautiful daylight streaming in one end. A couple of minutes later, I was on the bank with my buddy. Say, Tommy. (laughs) I began as I took off my wetsuit. Remember what I said about how I'd rather die in a cave than anywhere else? (laughs) Scratch that. (laughs) Yeah, Tommy says. Well, forget it. I'd just as soon live a bit longer. (laughs) I can think of a million places I'd rather die than a cave. Oh, no kidding. So, hey, this is... um 
This is just a little tiny bit out of the book, The Taming of the Slew, A Comprehensive History of Peacock Springs, which is uh, you know officially published in 2004. The the book started off again as you know you know Sheck was writing his conquest of Peacock Slough Caverns, and then later on you know this was this was finished with the uh, with the help of a bunch of other writers, and it goes over all kinds of really cool stuff about that whole area. So if you're interested in that Peacock Springs cave diving and uh, want a little bit more of the history of it, you know this goes through the geology in the area goes through the biology of the different you know crayfish and fish and freshwater eels and salamanders and stuff that's that, that's in the area the the whole mm-hmm. social history of the area you know talking about dr peacock and, and that whole family um, how cave diving training was born and and grew in that area kind of became what we know today of as cave diving where that all started and then really goes through the the conquest of that whole cavern area and all those caves, talking about uh, getting deeper and deeper when they search for depth in that lower, lower, lower room, getting downwards of two hundred feet in in the system. The big uh, the big grand junction of Peacock and Waterhole and Henley's Castle and all kinds of really cool stuff. So. And a bunch of maps and data. There's, you know, so if you're a data nerd, there's all kinds of cool data in here. The early, the early cave, you know, pictures and mapping drawings that he did by hand, and then a ton of really cool full color photos of the caves above and below. So it's a mm-hmm. really great book. It is if you like diving and diving stories and diving data. Uh, this is a book for you. And. It's the wrap-up of National Great Dive Podcast, National Cave Diving Month. Can you believe Cave Diving Month is, is over already? Another one in the books. It's, it's actually uh, interplanetary Cave Diving Month. It's not just national. It's bigger than that. It's universal. It's the- it's the black hole of school <laughs> podcasts. It's <laughs> Literally. Yes. So... No, great, good choice to uh, wrap up cave diving month. Let me tell you, this this was a hard one to pick because we had a lot of lot of great listeners that sent us suggestions of story ideas for this year's cave diving month, and I, which is good because I've got something in, on the docket for next year already, already working on next year's <laughs> National Cave Diving Month. I uh, wish we could get to them all, but there's only so much time. We got to get back to some other stuff, you know, that the non-cave diving people want to talk about. All right, my man. Well, should we finally sign these logbooks? Uh, sign these sh- logbooks on cave diving month. Sure. Let's sign the logbooks. All right. Let me see yours here. Okay. Here you go. Brando, that was a great dive at. Sabertooth Tiger Springs. <laughs> Let's do it again, my man. Ah, I like it. Uh, James, is that a peacock in your pocket, or are you just excited? No, no, no. I'm just, just, I'm just happy to be. I'm just happy to see you. Nice. I'm just happy to get suited up with you today. That's all. Awesome. Can uh, you got a 
You got a condom, Catherine, on your phone. <laughs> I'm gonna need the, need the big one today. You got it. <laughs> anyway, safe diving, folks. See you.